You've heard of it. You may think you know something about it. You may be way down the rabbit hole and be a rabid Bitcoin maximalist. You may still be early in your journey, lost in a sea of shitcoins, seeing your wealth disappear before your eyes as your favourite token is rug-pulled by the cabal that runs the network. If you haven't done the work and read the Bitcoin standard to understand the compelling economic and technical case for Bitcoin as the sound money the world needs, then here is your chance for a crash course in why this orange beast deserves, at least initially, the next few hours of your attention and ultimately the best years of your life. The book. Most of the source material for these ideas comes from the book The Bitcoin Standard by Saif Dinamous. These words will help you zoom out and provide the 60,000-foot view of this awe-inspiring technological breakthrough in a digestible and easy-to-understand format. Use these highlights and packaged soundbites to convince your pokey-playing, cigarette-smoking mother that her very life itself is being stolen by the unsound monetary policy adopted by governments the world over. If she can only see her way through the cigarette haze and hear these words through the distracting toots and shrill whistles of the ever-expanding casino, Bitcoin could be her economic saviour. But why this book? So why should you give a damn about magic internet money that is so often framed as a Ponzi scheme and I knew a guy once who lost everything, therefore it is stupid and a scam and it uses too much electricity and China banned it so it must be bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, what if I said that the scales shall fall from your eyes once you understand how money is chosen on the free market, once you understand the gold standard and the fiat standard, and how Bitcoin is quite simply the best money ever invented? You will learn the economic case for Bitcoin and start to get an outline of the technical operation of the network. The book lays out a devastating argument against government-issued money, showing how it could be the single cause for the endless wars and economic destruction of the 20th century. It shows how a society flourishes under sound money and is crippled by government interference and market inefficiencies under unsound money. For something that represents one half of every economic transaction every individual conducts every day, it is a shocking indictment on society and evidence of the government's prerogative that individuals do not understand how money is selected and how it is created in the modern economy. Bitcoin will humble you and teach you this history. If you find this sketch interesting, please go and get the book and begin your journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. As everyone does, when it finally clicks, you will kick yourself that you didn't get it earlier, and you will want to scream about it at every family dinner and social gathering. As with the last book, we'll split this one into three separate posts. The first one will focus on the problem that money solves and what goods have historically been used as money. This will give the reader a good idea of how money used to be selected in the free market. You found the Selfers Lab podcast. My name is David Hart. Opening scene. November 1st, 2008. A programmer with the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto emailed a cryptography mailing list announcing that he had created a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer with no trusted third party. 
This electronic cash system was Bitcoin, and it offered a payment network with its own native currency. Members would verify all transactions without trusting anyone in the network. The currency was to be issued at predetermined rate to reward users that used processing power to verify the transactions. There had been several attempts to achieve a digital cash previously, but none had been successful. The shocking thing this time was that Bitcoin actually worked. For months, not much happened on the network, with only a few dozen users active. On October 2009, the first purchase was made, with the cost calculated based on electricity cost needed to produce the Bitcoins. It was now a verified market good that someone had positively valued. On May 22, 2010, Two pizzas were purchased for 10,000 bitcoins valued at $25. This was the first instance of bitcoin being used as a medium of exchange. Since then, the bitcoin network has grown exponentially in value. Bitcoin is a distributed software network that allows the transfer of value without relying on any trusted third parties. It utilizes a native currency that is protected from unexpected inflation. It automates the processes of the central bank. No one individual can change the rules without the consensus of almost all other users. It is a form of money that is under full control of the holder and is more likely to hold its value than any other money. This summary outlines the economic problems that Bitcoin solves. We'll dig into what money is and what problem money aims to solve. This will help show what the difference is between sound and unsound money and the implications of each throughout history, how money is the measurement system of the economy, and how sound money allows for the stable operation of the economy. It is also essential to a free society to protect against a tyrannical, overreaching government. Once the economic argument is established for Bitcoin, we'll then look at how the network actually works, what it is good for, and address some common misconceptions. Do the work. Keep reading and thinking on this deep problem. Understand the nature of this incredible invention. Take personal responsibility and please invest the time in understanding Bitcoin. What is money? Without asking this question, we cannot understand how Bitcoin is the latest technology to serve the function of money. You must first understand money to understand Bitcoin. To understand money, you must understand the history and function of money. For the longest time in human history, all we had for economic transactions was direct exchange, also known as barter. This was practical for only a few dozen people at a time. It was highly inefficient and did an extremely poor job at solving the coincidence of wants problem. The coincidence of wants problem is basically this. What you want is produced by someone who doesn't want what you are selling. For example, there can be a lack of coincidence of wants in scales. I want to buy a car, but I only have 500 pairs of shoes to buy the car with. There can be a lack of coincidence of wants in time frames. I am collecting enough apples to buy a house, but they are rotting before I can buy it. And there can be a lack of coincidence of wants in locations. I want to swap my house for a boat that someone has in another state, but I can't give him the house because it is too difficult to shift. To solve the coincidence of wants problem, we needed a medium of exchange. This could then be used for indirect exchange. 
As the economy grows larger, a good will typically be selected in the market to be used as a medium of exchange. This good would be called money, and its use as a medium of exchange is the first function of money. Money is a good that is purchased not to be consumed and not to be used to produce other goods, but primarily for exchange of other goods. Money must be liquid, meaning transactions in it incur a low cost and are easy. It must also be saleable, which is the ease with which a good can be sold whenever desired with the least loss in its price. There is nothing that stipulates what form money should take. If you buy something with the aim of exchanging it for something else, it is acting as money. Gold, silver, copper, seashells, rye stones, salt, cattle, government paper, precious stones, cigarettes in prison, and alcohol in the Soviet Union. All of these have acted as money at some point in our history. The saleability of money can be assessed across scales, space, and time. Saleability across scales. Money must be sufficiently divisible so that it is useful for small and large transactions. Saleability across space. Money must be easy to carry and transfer as desired from one location to another. And saleability across time. Money must hold its value into the future. This forms the second main function of money, a store of value, the first being a medium of exchange. The value of money must be immune to decay, hence why storing your wealth in apples is a bad idea. The supply of whatever good is selected as money must not be able to be increased massively compared to the existing stock. The relative difficulty in producing new monetary units is what determines the hardness of the money. Hardness can be understood through the stock, which is the existing supply, and the flow, which is the extra production in the next time period. The ratio of stock to flow is a good indicator of the hardness of money. A low stock to flow ratio for a good means that it is easy to increase the supply. If you choose a hard money for a store of value, purchasing this money increases demand, causing the price to rise, incentivizing producers to make more of it. Because the flow is small compared to a large existing supply, there is little impact on price and should retain value across time. Anything that has been selected for use as money will have something that limits the flow. It must be costly to produce new monetary units, otherwise whatever wealth is stored in, the money will be devalued by the quick expansion of the supply. If the new supply is increased due to technology or political developments, the good used as money will lose its monetary status and something else will be settled on to perform the role of money. People used to use seashells until modern technology allowed for the easy collection of seashells. Then money switched to precious metals, and then government issued paper notes backed by gold. When governments would overinflate their paper notes, people would switch to holding foreign currencies and gold. The 20th century is littered with examples of this. There is a continual competition between goods on the market competing for monetary status. The majority of wealth will flow towards the hardest, most saleable money. Those that choose easy money will see their wealth destroyed. The free market was effective at determining the hardest money long before the government got involved and dictated what should be considered money. 
This imposition by the government hinders the free market determination of what is the best good to perform the function of money. With wide acceptance of a certain good as money, it has the opportunity to become a unit of account. With no standard money, it is very difficult to make economic calculations to determine the value of goods. If everything is expressed in the same money, this acts as a measure of interpersonal value. It allows for complex calculations, specialization, capital accumulation, and much larger and more sophisticated markets. If easy money were to be used as a unit of account and the quantity was significantly increased, this would distort the real opportunity cost and screw up the measure of interpersonal value. With a hard money that holds its value across time, it allows individuals to plan for the future and invest in longer and more sophisticated structures of production, promoting sound investments and a flourishing economic capacity of the society operating under hard money. Many things have played the role of money in history. There have been added benefits and new pitfalls with each new money. Reviewing this, we can begin to understand why certain goods succeeded or failed and then review Bitcoin in a similar light. Artifacts as money. Stones, beads, seashells and cattle. There are many examples of goods that were selected as money long before the state deemed it their right and responsibility to issue currency. On Yap Island, rye stones were used as money. These stones were not native to the island, so there was great difficulty in excavating and delivering to the island, thereby creating a high stock-to-flow ratio for the rye stones. They could weigh up to four tonnes and required hundreds of people to shift. The stones would sit in a public area and everyone knew who owned which stones. This worked for hundreds of years until 1871 when an Irish-American captain by the name of David O'Keefe shipwrecked on the island. He saw an opportunity to take coconuts from the island and sell to coconut oil producers, but he couldn't get the locals to work for him. Procuring explosives from Hong Kong, he went to where they quarried the stones and produced several large stones using explosives and brought them to the island. Some refused to accept them due to the stones not being produced in the traditional way. Others accepted, which resulted in dispute and conflict. Eventually, the rye stones lost their monetary status. With the introduction of modern technology, the stock to flow for the rye stones decreased dramatically. Anyone using the stones as a store of value was ruined, losing saleability across time and no longer being able to use the good as a medium of exchange. The story is the same for all other goods that were once considered money and subsequently lost their monetary role. Another example of this is the agri-beads in Western Africa. Agri-beads were glass beads that were difficult to produce in Africa at the time, a high stock to flow. Unlike the rice stones, they were easy to transport and able to scale, making them saleable across time and space. The glass beads had absolutely no monetary value in Europe because they were easy to produce. Once the Europeans realised what the Africans were using for money, they were able to import masses of beads and slowly over time destroy the role of the agri-bead as money. Not only did they destroy the money, all of the wealth of the society was transferred to those who could produce the monetary unit easily. Keep this in mind when we come to discuss the modern economic model. Seashells were used as money in many parts of the world, with the rarer ones attracting larger value. European settlers of North America adopted seashells as legal tender in 1636. 
Due to the shells not being uniform, it was difficult to measure prices and ratios, and hence scale the economy effectively. As more gold and silver became available, this became preferred because of the uniformity that could be achieved. Additionally, as boat technology advanced, the stock-to-flow ratio dropped dramatically, and in 1661, seashells stopped being legal tender. Cattle was also widely used as money, and still is in some areas. Cattle could be used for payments such as dowries. Now obviously a cow is not easily divisible, so salt was often used alongside it, with salt being saleable across time and easily divisible. It is interesting to note that the word salary is derived from sal, which is the Latin word for salt. Once the technology had advanced sufficiently with metallurgy and we'd unlocked the power of hydrocarbons, artefact money was abandoned as it lost its hardness, being far too easy to produce with the new machines. Metal as money, the gold standard. As our technical capacity improved and we could produce more quantities of different types of metal, it started to perform the role of a monetary good. The density and relatively high value made it highly saleable across space and time. Rare metals that were less likely to corrode, such as gold and silver, became dominant monetary goods. Gold is amazing in this way as it is virtually indestructible, with almost all of the gold ever found still in existence today. Gold, silver and copper were used as coins 2,500 years ago. Gold was great for transferring value across space and time, but silver was better at saleability across scales. There were issues with using the different metals due to fluctuating values and with governments and counterfeiters reducing the metal content of the coins. In the 19th century, banknotes that were backed by gold started to be issued. This allowed for transactions at any scale, resulting in silver no longer being required. It allowed for trade to be united around the world under a single sound market-based choice for money, gold. The new development of banks issuing notes backed by gold also allowed for banks and governments to increase the money supply beyond what reserves were actually held, a practice known as fractional reserve banking. So what is so special about gold? If people decide to hold a good as a store of value, it will increase demand above its market use, pushing the price up. Once the monetary demand has subsided, price should stabilise and start to decline. Higher prices will also encourage more production, increasing the supply and further pushing prices down. This transfers wealth from savers to producers of the commodity. This pattern generally applies to commodities that are primarily consumed and destroyed, and provides an outline for a market bubble. A good store of value has to beat this market bubble trap. It has to increase in value when used to store wealth, but suppliers are sufficiently limited in their production capacity so as not to be able to increase the flow of the market significantly. Gold has performed this function because it is almost indestructible and cannot be synthesised, meaning it must be found and dug up. The additional production of gold each year is very small compared to the total stockpile of gold because almost all of the gold ever found still exists in human control today. This low rate of supply is fundamentally why gold has maintained its monetary role. Copper and silver did not maintain their monetary role due to the ease at which production could be ramped up if demand pushed prices up. 
The only reason copper and silver ever had a monetary role was due to the difficulty in getting hold of sufficient amounts of gold, and due to the scalability of pricing with gold for smaller transactions. Greece was the first state to be able to mint gold coins for regular trade. This technological advancement encouraged global trade as the coins were widely sought after due to their consistency and saleability. Since this period, the fate of societies has been bound to the soundness of the money with which they operated under. Society flourished in times of hard money and became destitute and collapsed in times of easy money. Rome, the Golden Age and Decline During the Roman Empire, the silver denarius coin and the gold aureus coin were minted and used for transactions. This resulted in economic stability and flourishing of society for 75 years until the Emperor Nero started the practice of clipping the coins, which was basically collecting them from the citizens and reminting them with less gold or silver content. In the beginning, Rome was able to conquer lands, pulling in huge wealth for its soldiers and emperors. The emperor began to mandate low prices for goods and many people moved to the city for an easier and less productive life. Eventually, with no new land to conquer, and the lavish lifestyles to support, the currency was devalued to reduce real wages, reduce the costs for the government, and provide additional sources of revenue for government expenditure. The clipping started the reinforcing cycle of anger at prices rising due to inflation, price controls to quell the populace, coin debasement, and further price rises. Ferdinand Lips summarised this process as follows. It should be of interest to the modern Keynesian economists, as well as to the present generation of investors, that although the emperors of Rome frantically tried to manage their economies, they only succeeded in making matters worse. Price and wage controls and legal tender laws were passed, but it was like trying to hold back the tides. Rioting, corruption, lawlessness, and a mindless mania for speculation and gambling engulfed the empire like a plague. With money so unreliable and debased, speculation in commodities became far more attractive than producing them. As taxes increased, the price controls failed. People fled the city to live on abandoned plots of land, trying to sustain themselves. The cities crumbled and the empire was left in ruin. Constantine and the Bezant. In contrast to what was happening in the west of the Roman Empire, Constantine was instrumental in establishing the Eastern Roman Empire. The Bezant, also known as the Solidus, was maintained without debasement for a long time. This currency became the longest serving sound currency in human history. While Rome collapsed, the city of Constantinople thrived for centuries until the rulers started to debase the currency, resulting in the collapse of the society shortly after. The Renaissance. Feudalism took over in Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Gold was hoarded by the lords of the land. The peasants only had access to copper and bronze for money. It was easy to inflate the supply of both of these, which only became easier with more advanced industrial processes. Taxation and inflation destroyed the wealth of the peasants, and the absence of a widely accepted standard of sound money limited trade, pushing Europe into the dark ages of serfdom, diseases and religious persecution. 
The rise of city-states under sound money pulled Europe out of the Dark Ages, starting with the florin being minted in Florence in 1252. This resulted in Florence becoming the commercial centre of Europe, leading many countries to start minting their own coins with the same specification as the florin. This allowed citizens to accumulate wealth and trade with money saleable across space and time and divided into small coins for easy divisibility. With the invention of the telegraph and a growing network of trains, it became easy for banks to communicate with each other, increasing the use of paper receipts instead of transferring the physical gold. Britain was to adopt a gold standard in 1717 and maintain this, except for during the Napoleonic Wars, until 1914 and the start of World War I. Once Britain had adopted a gold standard, more nations followed and Europe as a whole flourished. Gold's problem of scalability was solved with the banknotes. This was basically a death sentence for silver as a monetary medium. India and China witnessed a massive destruction of their wealth and capital as a result of staying on a silver standard much longer than the West. It is an important lesson that you cannot insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding money that is harder than yours. Unfortunately, the only way gold could solve the saleability across space and scales was through centralisation in banks. This meant that there was no individual sovereignty and the flows of gold was impacted by government controls. The soundness of money in the late 19th century led to an unprecedented period of prosperity, with increased saving rates among citizens that enabled capital accumulation to finance industry, urban development and technological improvements. Societies were much freer and the governments had few bureaucracies interfering with the lives of citizens. As Ludwig von Mises described it, The gold standard was the world standard of the age of capitalism, increasing welfare, liberty and democracy, both political and economic. In the eyes of the free traders, its main eminence was precisely the fact that it was an international standard as required by international trade and the transactions of the international money and capital markets. It was the medium of exchange by means of which the Western industrialism and Western capital had borne Western civilization to the remotest parts of the Earth's surface, everywhere destroying the fetters of old-aged prejudices and superstitions, sowing the seeds of new life and new well-being, freeing minds and souls, and creating riches unheard of before. It accompanied the triumphal, unprecedented progress of Western liberalism, ready to unite all nations into a community of free nations peacefully cooperating with one another. This all came crashing down with the start of World War I and the abandonment of the gold standard. This began the era of government-controlled money, also known as fiat currency. The centralisation of the gold reserves allowed the governments to expand the money supply beyond their reserves to finance the war. Central banks have still been accumulating gold reserves since this time, indicating that although they've declared the end of gold as money, they must still maintain the reserves of the traditional hardest money. So let's summarise what we've learned so far about money. Money solves the coincidence of wants problem across scales, time and location. It does this by acting as a medium of exchange, a store of value and a unit of account. Anything can be selected as money on the free market, as long as it has the required monetary properties mentioned earlier. The hardness of money is based on the stock-to-flow ratio. If there is a low flow of new monetary units to the market compared to existing stock, then the money will be hard and considered a good store of value. 
wealth always flows to the hardest, most saleable money. Stones, agribeads and seashells all performed the role of money in previous civilizations. These were displaced by new technology that turned these forms of money from hard to soft by making it easier to produce new money. Once metallurgy developed and we were able to mint standard gold coins, gold displaced all other monies and became the global standard. This golden age continued until the suspension of the gold standard and the replacement of gold with fractional reserve banking and government-issued paper notes. You now know how money has historically been selected for in the world. Next post will lay out how the government got into the business of money creation and the impact of unsound money on time, preference, the free market, price mechanism and individual freedom. If you've enjoyed this so far, go get the book, read it and share it with your friends. Remember this is just a sketch, a collection of notes I use to more fully embed the knowledge from a book that I have read. The real gold, or Bitcoin in this case, is in the book. Use these posts as a way to learn new chunks of knowledge quickly and send nuggets of wisdom to your friends who cannot commit to reading a whole book. If you've got any questions on this book or suggestions for any books you'd like to see notes on, hit me up on Twitter at TheDavidHart. To read the writing behind this podcast, subscribe on Substack. Connect with me on Twitter. If you think this thing is worth anything, consider supporting me on Patreon. Thanks for listening.